Chanel Niles is a stand-up comedian from Truro, Nova Scotia, and the producer of Got Land, an all-Indigenous comedy tour. The Got Land show is an example of what greater solidarity could mean for the culture of comedy in Canada. The stated goal of the show is to, quote, express solidarity with humor as a way of gaining grassroots control over the sites of cultural production. The venues, shows, institutions, and platforms that determine who makes it and who gets missed in comedy. We discuss Janelle's ability to use humor to cope with some of the most difficult subjects imaginable. Beyond just the joy of making other people laugh, we all know that humor can be a survival strategy. COVID-19, we also know, has devastated creative communities and it's created a level of suffering in communities of color that should show us unequivocally how present and immediate the legacies of systemic oppression are in Canada. Niles talks about her hustle here, which she says is required to fight that system. But the point of solidarity is that the status quo can't be changed or challenged by one person alone. Her ambition is to construct a legacy of comradeship and mutual care one that is real and formidable enough to fight deeply unfair forms of exclusion. One of the things that Janelle says that I really appreciate here is that people are not politically aware in Canada. That's an important baseline in a way. It implies having to be sort of pragmatic about communication. And comedy, she says, is an extremely intuitive communicational art. She describes this feeling of having been born political not only because she is black and indigenous, but because her experience of racism in Canada has opened her eyes to the scale of racial inequality in this country. A certain kind of racism exists within the culture of comedy in Canada. Niles describes the experience of a black comedian in Montreal who was told that if there was more than one black comic on a bill, then the show would be quote, too ghetto, too ethnic, as she puts it, this attitude means that, in effect, people of color are still either the token performer on a white-dominated bill or not included at all, and she wants to dismantle that. The watchword here is this notion of audacity. Janelle makes connections between how the Idle No More movement, which is 10 years old and still going strong, provided the grassroots opportunity to speak the truth and push to be heard and respected. It reminded First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples in the place currently called Canada that it's unfair to be pushed into a point in the past, to be pressured into invisibility and intimidated out of asserting basic rights. Niles doubles down and says that Got Land is like Idle No More with jokes and insists on the audacity of BIPOC comedy and the fact of her presence on this land now. In this context, she talks about trying to be truthful, transparent, and come from a place of love, while working to ensure that she never has to justify her existence. She says she is willing to go to difficult places and break down misconceptions one joke at a time. I wanted to start, I guess, with um, this question about sort of what you think is funny and the place of kind of like providing political insight or social commentary and comedy. Like you've, you've talked a lot about this um, and, and not just from like a, a purely indigenous perspective, but certainly from an indigenous perspective of a person that's 
you know, uh, um, concerned with not just what reconciliation could mean, but like what land back looks like. Um, you know, so one of the things I've been reading is there's this book by Cliff Nestroff called We Had Had a Little Real Estate Problem, which is Yeah, a, I have it on my desk. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a Charlie Hill joke, right? The title mm-hmm. of that that book. Um, and there's like a moment in that book, which it sounds like you're very familiar with, where he he quotes uh Thomas Ryan Redcorn, um, who's a collaborator of you know Sterling Harjo and stuff. And uh Redcorn says that he is, quote, so fucking sick of all these sad Indian movies. Uh, he says, you know, even among our own people, that's what gets funding and that's what's getting made, heavy content. Um, and he says, there's just got to be something else on the menu. Um, so like, while a lot of the time you're talking about, like, at least in interviews, the, you know, tumultuous family that you 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 come from and the, the legacy of sort of trauma, uh, you know, especially your father, um, you know, uh, where you couldn't, as you say, think of the next day, you're not in your comedy so much like mining the tragic, you're cultivating the comic. And, uh, you know, why is that? I mean, you know, what is it about the, the the kind of formulaic nature almost of comedy? What's expected of you as a comic that maybe prompts that? But what's like the larger, maybe almost spiritual goal of your comedy when it comes to that thing of trying to cultivate uh, what's funny in these, you know, in this difficult life? Well, if I had to uh, wrap up uh, that whole question in one simple word, it would be audacity. I like yeah. to uh, put a microscope up to the world and then talk about the audacity of uh, the trials and tribulations that we go through, through comedy, because mm-hmm. comedy is the best outlet. And with our comedy, we can kind of like break down those, uh, those molds. And I believe Idle No More uh, let us say what we want up there. Let us say what our truth. And as much as uh, it sounds like I'm mining <laughs> for the political, it, it's all coming from a, a place of uh, audacity and like joking about as if those, these things exist. But they do. So mm-hmm. let's make fun of them. And uh, with the spiritual sense, it's making sure that I'm uh, upholding the seven sacred teachings. I know I'm not as humble as I can be as an entertainer because <laughs> we're all a bunch of narcissists. <laughs> but um, I, I do try to be as truthful and transparent and come from a place of love. Yeah. And I mean, that comes through. And something you mentioned there reminded me of, I think, an interview you gave to APTN where you talk about how Got Land, your 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 show that you produce, is I don't know more, but with comedy, yes, <laughs> um, which is so brilliant, like such a brilliant way of thinking about it. Like you say that you know your jokes might be a bit abrasive, but uh, you can't get anywhere unless you push. Mm-hmm. It's like there's so much potential in that, um, and yet you also have to be sort of like. You, you know, so you, you talk about this kind of radical honesty in your comedy, but it also has to be crafted in certain ways. And I like the story that you tell about how Just for Laughs needed you to write out a transcript of your routine for the gem show mm-hmm. um, and that there were no notes, which is yeah. like almost unprecedented. I know. You, you call this like kind of a flex. <laughs> um, but the thing I want to ask in relationship to that, like I'm, I'm watching this, uh, you know, interview with I think it's the Just Chill podcast. And you say like, that um, part of the reason for that is that the audience helps you write your jokes. Were you able to almost like transcribe the reciprocal nature of like doing comedy in a way that like, 
just understood where the audience was and how to not like completely alienate them? Is that part of the reason why you think there were no notes? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> definitely. Cause mm-hmm. I have to be able to be relatable to them and they mm-hmm. don't know our struggles. They don't know what we went through. So how am I going to convey that to them and how they will understand. And every time I'm up there with every, di- cause every do- audience is a bit different. I get to see where they're at and then I can, uh, kind of, you know, rewrite my material or say it in a different way or add a tag or somewhere in that so they can uh, be on board. Because if they're not on board, they will not laugh. And Mm -hmm. as a comedian, our first and foremost thing that we want to do is to make them laugh. And we can never forget that. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's not comedy without it. And that's why Mm -hmm. I, I often find it so strange in a way like when shows like big bang theory or whatever use like canned laughter it's just so obvious you know what i mean yes. i think there's like that one moment in the weird uh, andy kaufman biopic where he's like yelling at his manager like those people are dead you know like the people who are laughing on these tracks um that always comes to mind when i hear a laugh track but like it, there's something alive about that moment of getting laughs and yet like it sounds like you don't want to kind of get laughs cheaply either like you're really working for it and (laughs) like for example like in the in the they talk funny interview you gave you talked about how like your worst fear is that you'll be put in a box where you're you're expected to just to do just indigenous comedy um and to kind of like you know fall into that specific sort of like identity category and only be understood and laughed laughed with in those like terms um but you and so like this is to sort of like the intersectional nature in some ways of your identity. Like you say, I want to be an indigenous comic and everyone's comic. You kind of talk in one interview about how you're like three comics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess like, you know, I wonder basically if you could like break down a couple of jokes that you do that kind of capture that there's one, one where I think you do it. um, uh, You did it for the Gotland show with Algonquin college where you like started the show by smudging and celebrating solidarity through humor and adding that if folks didn't like the show, they can go smudge, smudge themselves. themselves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I always say that, uh, oh, you're going to have to smudge after this show. Oh, <laughs> you're going to have to smudge. <laughs> it's just uh, so uh, did you have three jokes of mine you wanted me to break down or did you I had to... one? I had one other one. So okay. like there's there's a joke about your spirit name, right? Ah, yes. I guess the question for me about this joke is like, what is subversive about a Mi'kmaq person singing King of Pride Rock, <laughs> the, the like Lion King Lying theme? Sing, circle of Life, yeah. You know what I mean? Circle of Life. Um, you know, it's something that I think about a lot in relationship to just like the ways that like contemporary Indigenous communicators, like those at the Red Nation, for example, that mm-hmm. podcast, talk about like just like reclaiming geekdom and pop culture and making a joke about something that you say you take very seriously, which is like the, you know, the, the taking of the spirit name. So if you could like speak to those two jokes and how you're kind of playing with identity categories while at the same time kind of resisting them, that would be, I'd be really interested in that. Sure. So uh, for first raise of the sun woman, let me get that one off the bat right here. So mm-hmm. um, I was sitting at work one day and uh, I was uh, watching the, uh, you know, those videos where they're on the planes and they're swinging the circle of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind because I always sang with them, and then I realized I'm like, hey, wait, that's kind of good. You remember the Obama bit with Trump? Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, it, it was a kind of mixture of that, 
because what I want to do is I want to mix my black heritage with my indigenous heritage. And I saw what the uh, Trump did to Obama saying, oh, we need to see your birth certificate where you're from. And mm-hmm. then Obama doing the joke, the circle of life as his, uh, <laughs> his video. And then I was like, hey, I can throw that in first race of the sun woman because it's a sunrise. So and because it's mm-hmm. African, the circle of life and then indigenous as first race of sun woman, I just melded the two and it became uh something like i know i I do understand that some in my people were like hey you're making a mockery of your uh your spirit name but that's not what i'm doing i'm just uh collaborating two of my heritages together and i'm uh i'm first race of the sun woman every day is a new day to me so i I, that's how that joke uh, came to be Mm -hmm. and every time i say it it always gets a big laugh and uh, i get to belt out and sing (laughs) and and cbc's like you have to stop it at six seconds six seconds (laughs) (laughs) we don't get sued so when they said no notes they did call me back and they're like uh how long do you sing that song for (laughs) like six seconds yes and they're like okay we'll do six seconds it's like like, we're dealing with disney here we can't be too careful (laughs) (laughs) on tiktok i got some comments they're like you need to sue disney that's your spirit (laughs) 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 but um when it comes to uh go smudge yourself the that is also Ooh, I, I I got in trouble, actually. They told me really? to stop bringing sage to shows because there's alcohol involved and we don't want our sacred medicines near alcohol. So I have stopped saying that joke just out of respect for my people and they let me know. Then the hmm. audience let me know that uh, I shouldn't be bringing sage into, um, into that space. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you're negotiating all of these different forces in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about how, um, you know, in terms of like, representation um that there's like always a politics to that um and you you know in the the cbc gem show the next wave of stand-up which you're featured on you emphasize this idea that like comedy can be a tool of indigenous political communication political communication in general a, a transformative thing um but it is like explicitly for you like a show like got land is about mainstreaming mm-hmm. um and i guess like i wanted to kind of get into the political a little bit. Sure. So you've talked a lot about the, the, you know, the spectacle of white settler violence on the South shore of Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. uh, the burning of a Mi'kmaq lobster fishery. Um, and like you joked on the, they talk funny podcast about like everyone knew who set this fire, but it is, as you say, it takes a long time to charge white people, especially mm-hmm. when all your cousins are RCMP. I don't know. It's tricky, right? Like when you stick your neck out in that particular way, do you feel like you are ever met with any sort of like um, backlash or do you, you kind of relish being, as you've put it, sort of an edgelord and taking that radical <laughs> position, position on these sorts of things, which shouldn't be even considered radical, right? Like mm-hmm. this is just what has happened and you're sort of calling it out. So I, I would say I was born political. Mm-hmm. I was born from uh, my mother, who's a descendant of the slave trade, and my dad, who was in uh, residential schools at the Indian Day School on the reserve. So I was born into this, and uh, it would be it would be unfair not to uh, let Canada know that we're still here, because mm-hmm. I was born from the the racism of uh, my mom being denied by white men <laughs> in her small town, mm-hmm. and being uh, my dad being. Um, uh, kind of like stationed on the res and I, I, I don't want to have to justify my existence 
mm -hmm. know, it's, yeah. uh, I'm um, battling Canada as much as I am uh, battling uh, myself because of uh, the intergenerational trauma, because I could have went the other way right quick. I was, uh, I was homeless. I was on the streets. I had substance abuse, but I got out of it. Um, because uh, at that time, I actually wanted to be RCMP. I actually have a mm. challenge coin. I did the interviews and stuff. And then an elder uh, told me about how they believe it was the RCMP, the ones that um, uh, murdered a lot of those ladies on the uh, on the Highway of Tears. And then it kind of put it in perspective, like, will I be siding with the enemy? And as much right. as I wanted to reclaim the Niles name, uh, to be a be uh, to be uh, better in Canada's light, I was like, oh, there's another way to do this. I can reclaim the Niles name by uh, being a spokesperson, if you will. <laughs> like I'm not mm -hmm. the moral arbiter of my race, but I mm -hmm. do do I do have a message. Um, and with the uh, the politics, it is it's tough. It's tough because I get a lot of flack um, mm -hmm. for just saying these things in their face that's the I joke about that I tell white people to their face what it is that's it mm. I just tell them like last night I had a show and it was uh there was lawyers and judges and like <laughs> there was a lot of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants there was a lot of people in there and I still did my jokes and I still they still laughed and they were smart enough to get my jokes and that's another thing people mm. are not politically aware and uh, again, they don't understand our uh, struggles and they have misconceptions that they were brought up with. And uh, with our comedy, indigenous comedy per se, is kind of like dismantling those misconceptions uh, one joke at a time. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, I, I wanted to jump off of something you were saying about like just the venue. You've talked about how one of your favorite places to perform is the comedy bar in Toronto mm -hmm. and how like audiences laugh so honestly in that space. Um, that must be a kind of, not a rare commodity necessarily, but you must really appreciate it when it happens, maybe especially in Canada. I spoke to a, Bra a Brazilian comedian named Carol Zoccoli for a class once, and she talked about like the reticence of Canadian audiences to laugh at especially like pretty boundary pushing humor. Like there's this kind of like, kind of maybe liberal sentimentality on some level that mm -hmm. makes it hard to laugh at trauma in particular, like it's like in bad taste or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess like, to the question of like what the best cities in some ways for comedy in Canada are, you know, are there, are there places where they're like better incubators for comedians? Like, you, you know, you're, you're based in Ottawa, you know, how does, how does like the city itself, the opportunities that are available there influence the culture of comedy and, and, and determine audiences too, or, or is it just this reciprocal thing? I would say that um, Vancouver uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, is the best city to do my style of comedy. They're mm -hmm. always on board, really good laughers. But yes, in Toronto as well, like the comedy bar, it's just a lot of uh, like-minded individuals, whether they're on the left or the right, they understand what I'm saying and they understand that it's comedy because they want to laugh. Um, mm -hmm. And Vancouver's the same way. I'm uh, going to be testing the waters in Halifax with my yeah. comedy in July. So that's going to be a, a neat test. And I'm also, uh, so for Ottawa, because I've been here so long, if mm -hmm. you drive 30 minutes out of Ottawa, they would not like my material. So when hmm. that happens, when I do shows outside of Ottawa and the surrounding area, I make sure to do a lot of crowd work. I let them 
They don't want me barking at them. They don't want to hear a history lesson. They don't want to hear anything like that. They feel mm. offended. They're the like, mm -hmm. how is she alive? You know, like, you know what I mean? They're like, they're, they're yeah. on the doctrine of discovery. They're real Christian people who believe that we shouldn't have been, uh, we should assimilate. Wow. So I do a lot of crowd work. And instead of me talking about myself, I let them talk about themselves. And then I just shoot back uh, at them. And a very teasing way, because indigenous <laughs> comedy is very teasing, and they mm -hmm. love that. And then, as much as like they tease me, I tease them back. So I make sure to just do as uh, like read the room, and uh, mm -hmm. I do a lot of crowd work outside of Ottawa. And with Ottawa, whole even in the city, it's like everyone took a module that day about why the stuff I'm saying is not funny. Hmm. That's that's how I think about it. It's like everybody just took a whole seminar about you can't say this, you can't say that. But why is this indigenous black comedian saying it? And I'm like, because who else? Who else better right. to say these things than an indigenous black woman of Canada to be able to say it? So it's also breaking down that barrier, their own shield of, oh, I'm not allowed to talk about this. But why is she allowed to talk about that? And I'm like, and I tell them white guilt was so 2019. You got to get over it. <laughs> gotta get over it um that is like it just sounds like I, I somebody else has said this to you in an interview that it does sound i think it was uh you you um you appeared on cbc's unreserved yeah and and there was this idea that just like that is that sounds exhausting that sounds terrifying um but at the same time i think you've said before that like the jitters remind you of why you love to do comedy and you want to do comedy. So it sounds like you're kind of feeding off the kind of nervous energy, the push and pull and the play of kind of like what's there and what's not there, where there's resistance. Like you're able to, able to kind of sense that out, which is amazing. Um, it's all part of comedy, honey. You have to know <laughs> how to, yeah, because we're, we're observationalists. Right. So if we're not observing how uh, the audience is reacting, then we're not learning. Um, mm -hmm. because I, I, I look to, uh, Tom Segura and, uh, Anthony Jeselnik, they can say the most horrendous things and get the mm. biggest laughs. And I'm like, I'm going to be up there with you guys one day. And, uh, everyone's going to be on board because it's going to be so well-crafted. It's going to be so well done. And in, the, in about five years, I might be the first indigenous woman on Netflix. It sucks that it might take that long, but that's my goal. And, you know, I, I think it's amazing, too, that, like, you have those long-term goals in a way. Like, I mean, obviously you do, but, like, they're very concrete. You've talked about, you know, how you, you expect to be running Yuck Yucks in Halifax in 20 years. Um, <laughs> yep. And, like, so these aspirations, like, to A, be on Netflix and have that kind of platform, but then B, to, like, control the platform, that, to me, is really inspiring, like, because then the idea clearly like for you as a producer is to like pave the way is to make space is to, mm -hmm. you know, empower um, other uh, BIPOC comedians, I guess, maybe in particular, the, the historically excluded uh, from like mm -hmm. the canon of comedy in, in Canada. Um, do you think there is a canon of comedy in Canada? I, I, I asked that question basically in relationship to like who you cite as your influences. You've been asked this a many, many times. I know who they mm -hmm. are. Um, I'm particularly interested in the way that you're inspired actually by Candy Palmiter, um, mm -hmm. who, who talks about being inspired by George Carlin saying like, you should actually not aspire to tell jokes other people are telling. You have to, you know, speak from your own perspective. And, and Palmiter says in one CBC interview, you know, like I'm, I'm a, you know, queer indigenous woman with a bad hip. Nobody's telling those jokes. Like, <laughs> you know, so 
you know, in terms of like making space, do you feel like those are people that made space for the specific kind of comedy you want to do? And where do you see some pushback, I guess, like from, I don't know, because you've talked about the elitists in comedy, mm-hmm. right? That, that still exist. Is there still kind of a conformist culture to some extent of, of comedy in Canada or is that changing? So in uh, Canadian comedy, uh, it's a good Christian nation, as they say. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's very white, if you will. It's very Caucasian. Mm. And uh, those people have paved the way through comedy. They're the ones who made it. Uh, what it is and uh, for us to come in there is pushback because they believe we're only like as a even as a woman they believe we're only getting stage time because I got boobs you know so when (laughs) indigenous people come in they're like oh you're only getting stage time because you're indigenous and I've had that said to my face I've had people try to belittle what we're doing and they're like oh you're just trying to take over you know like didn't you already get our taxes and they're like okay all right this is a different conversation (laughs) but um Mm. When it comes uh, to the pushback, um, just making sure that uh, they know that this is a comedy show. Um, We're -hmm. not just on a soapbox and preaching, even though it sounds like I am. I also make sure with Gotland Indigenous Comedy that even though we're expressing solidarity through humor, some of us just tell jokes. And I like I always mm-hmm. try to bring it back to comedy when I do get any pushback. Like we're just telling jokes up there. They're like, well, I can't say those jokes. I'm like, I didn't say that. You did. I didn't say you can't say the joke. Like I uh, mm-hmm. I love all jokes and from all comedians because I know even though there might be a glimmer of truth that all these jokes are uh, a fallacy. They're they're not real. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than if you do take a message from it, then, yeah, if the shoe fits, wear it. But George Carlin did that same thing up there. And uh, I do love candy palmiter because I'm like, I, I, I say that same thing about myself, how being a black indigenous two-spirit woman, I'm something they've never seen before. And especially wearing a suit up there because the white man stole my land. So I stole his clothes. <laughs> so, uh, it's a bit and it keeps working and I, it looks better on me anyway. <laughs> like they, they uh, so with the suit, actually, um, I, I wear the suit because it gives them the, uh, the the racists or the bigoted or uh, the people of Canada who might not like Indigenous people, it gives them permission to listen to me because I'm wearing their clothes. I'm wearing, like, they think I'm assimilated up there. And I'm like, no, colonization both failed and succeeded with me, honey. <laughs> You're going to get both. <laughs> I'm yeah. speaking your language. I'm wearing your clothes, but I'm telling you to face how we feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to actually ask about the the significance of of the suits. Like, it's clearly subversive. Um, you know, you you but you talk about how like you you didn't get the laughs uh, that you did not wearing a suit, mm-hmm. and that people kind of respect you more. And like you you realize that that's like horrible that you need to dress in this like modern European European standard, mm-hmm. but you're doing it with your own kind of like um, uh, right and and choosing suits that. Like you have like it sounds like you have like a specific view or a vision of what the suit should look like. And then you have to like go out in the world and find it, Um, which is different. Like that's an artistic move uh, Mm -hmm. that's about sort of trying to uh, shift the landscape, kind of like tilt, tilt the ice in your favor, to use a very Canadian like hockey metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, challenging the norm because everybody wants me up there in a pantsuit or a dress or I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah, my suits Mm -hmm. have to have uh, inspiration. So with my red suit, that's my Hugh Hefner jacket. 
I get all the aunties with that jacket. And I look like a mob boss. I look like a Ma- escorting Matt Damon out of a casino. I'm like, I, I love, it gives me so much energy when I wear that suit. It's like putting on the uniform. It gives me the confidence. And with my purple suit is paying homage to all the black comedians who came before me. Um, mm. Just making sure that uh, I'm paying homage to them because they, uh, they trailed the way and they look great doing it. And then I have a green suit that I just bought and that's my Sailor Jupiter suit. That's my Sailor yes. Jupiter feeling like, uh, cause I'm still a nerd. I'm still, <laughs> I love Sailor Moon. <laughs> and then I have a black suit and I call that my walking around suit. And uh, I have a blue suit that I just bought uh, too at the height of the Johnny Depp um, oh. uh, trial. And I dressed as Johnny Depp hosting uh, my Gotland show at Yak Yaks. And I did four Johnny jokes off the top. And then I, uh, at the third one, I asked the audience, hey, can I do another one? They're like, yeah. So I grabbed a jar of dirt and I'm like, this is my land. And they freaking died. It was beautiful. Ah, I was going to ask, how did the jokes do? It sounded right. like you loved it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like the, the suits are such a like clear way that you've kind of honed your persona in a way, like, which is itself interesting. Like there's this like relationship with just the materiality of like putting on clothes and occupying a different position as it were. And then you like really shift it depending on, it sounds like the crowd that you're trying to uh, uh, give joy to, to, you know? Um, And, and so like what is so interesting about like the way that you, you know, take a stage that you have this kind of, you know, summon this like specific power is that you are, you talk about like being an open book, but then, mm-hmm. in a in a weird way, when you like put on that, that uniform, it's like, it is armor. Like you talk mm-hmm. about how it's like, it's armor. Right. So it's like, you, you don't want to be maybe too vulnerable, too raw. You want to maintain that like audacity mm-hmm. and, and the suit sort of, it's, it, you know, give that impression, uh, in such a, yeah, like a kind of visible and visceral way, which I love. I have a line for it. Uh, the line is, uh, if they don't, <laughs> if they don't find me funny, at least they find me charming. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the old red green line. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. if women can't find you handsome, they can at least find you handy. Thank you. That's uh, exactly where. Uh, yeah. So that's how I echoes feel of that. Yeah, yeah. Echoes. I always take inspiration from a, uh, the ones that come before me. And red green, I loved. I watched ever since I was a kid. Kind of great, right? Mm-hmm. And like, it's funny, like guys like red green, it's pretty like, it's pretty vanilla or whatever, mm-hmm. but the, the people that, so you're taking inspiration from everywhere. It sounds like, you know, one of the people that you take inspiration to from like most recently is Bill Burr. Yeah. I'd love for you to get on like Bill Burr's friends who kill Netflix show. Steph Tolev, who's, uh, you know, originally from BC just appeared on his, his special and uh did pretty well and there's like obviously she talked on twitter about how like it's this huge surge that you get from um from being on netflix right they they have a they have a huge role in the sort of economics of comedy today and i guess like to that point like cbc you know i wanted to ask i guess about the um the way you imagine like because you have these aspirations to make space to take over as were certain parts of the comedy uh, uh, ecosystem that are, you know, still uh, controlled in many ways by, you know, a, a, a media system that is basically owned by like a few big companies. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you're also finding this like network of venues that are more or less independent of that system. Do you f- see those things as, as like coexisting or are there intersections or do they kind of still exist pretty separately? 
Oh, it's very separate, unfortunately. Okay. Um, they don't like to uh, work well with each other because every time mm. a new comedy venue or club or anything opens, it's in retaliation to another, especially in Ottawa. Interesting. So Absolute Comedy was uh, made in retaliation to Yuck Yucks. Laugh Lounge was made in retaliation to Absolute Comedy. And then um, in the Comedy Bar, and I think was retaliation to Yuck Yucks in Toronto. Um, don't quote me on that one, but it's more mm-hmm. like these uh these comedy clubs versus uh these big venues like a theater show will definitely be separate from a club but clubs really want to do theater shows but they don't want to take money from their clubs so Hmm. what they do is sign comics (laughs) they'll sign comics and then they'll take 15 percent of everything they make from that theater show so in a way you want to be a signed comic Mm -hmm. you want to be signed by these clubs but it's also detrimental to your progress because uh, at this time, like even if they asked to sign me, I'm headed to the States. I just did my first uh, Tacoma comedy show uh, at the Tacoma Comedy Club in, uh, by Seattle, Washington uh, this mm-hmm. weekend. And, cool. and just thinking of how a club would be like, well, we need 15% of what you make. You're our comic. I'm like, oh, I'm my comic. I'm my own agent i'm my own manager i'm my own admin so it's mm-hmm. when it comes to that it's very separate and with like let's say just for laughs uh they're their own entity they're, they're definitely their own entity mm. and uh but they're collaborating right now with cbc and right. i never saw that before like no I, yeah yeah it's something completely different so in the when the big hats they're collaborating i guess because of uh, the pandemic and the fact that sirius xm and uh, Just for Laughs got in a lot of trouble for just putting American comedians on their Just for Laughs network. And where's the Canadian comedians? They're getting all this funding hmm. for from Canada for Just for Laughs, but not putting on Canadian talent. So right now there's a resurgence of uh, Canadian entertainers coming to the forefront of the entertainment industry. Yeah, I mean, that's this is, I think, the thing that um, it, it seems to me, being obviously a non-comic and not not a particularly funny person. Um, I don't, you know, I don't understand completely is the, and, and it's not, you've spoken to how, um, I think you talked to Jen Hayward about this, how you need people to help people along mm-hmm. in this business, business, like to provide wisdom and guidance in especially the economics of performing, uh, the performing arts and comedy. Um, so, you know, like you you sharing some of the stuff that you've learned about the economic side of things, like, you know, the the benefits and the pitfalls of being signed, uh, that to me, just like it just like makes visible a landscape that probably for most comedians just very, very slowly becomes clear. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like uh, uh, what I love, too, is how you talk about like the the kind of um, the, almost like the care networks that you formed in Canadian comedy, uh, you know, especially uh, alongside somebody like Simone Holder. Mm-hmm. How do you think those care networks get formed? Is the competitive nature of these like rivalries between clubs and the like, you know, the kind of capitalist, capitalist nature of the ecosystem, something that works against the kind of forming of those sorts of care networks with, you know, I mean, obviously you found it with Simone Holder, but like you also talk about how um, if you could come together and create this like, quote, unstoppable force, you could like as a group resist some of these marginalizing, minimizing, uh, uh, al- very alienating things that happen t- 
to you as a comic in your attempt to like make just make people laugh how how's it going with that struggle i guess so i uh I learned, I know you might like, not like this, but I learned everything about camaraderie from Joe Rogan's crew. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I've been watching uh, JRE since I was uh, young. Like I, I've been watching his Fear Factor. I watched him on news radio and then I watched his podcast when he was there. And one of the mm-hmm. things that he does, like uh, you can separate the art from the artist in this way, <laughs> is right. he's, uh, he lifts up all his friends. And mm-hmm. all his friends are comedians and he brings on new comedians and he gives people chances and then he supports them and he shows them the way. And I'm like, why are we not doing that here in Canada? Like there's a joke that all Canadian media comedians know each other. And it's true. We all do. But do they help each other? Not at all, because it's a cutthroat right. industry. They believe mm-hmm. and wrongfully believe that if they help someone else they're taking from them and that's not how it's supposed to be and uh, even in hollywood if you uh help other people production movie they see that and then they want to work with you because it shows you're a good person it shows that you have great motivations that you want to help so why are we not emulating that and that's what i do Mm -hmm. with got land and here's the thing up here there's a couple comedians uh he uh He's a black comedian. He's in Montreal right now. He has a podcast and he was saying how in uh, in Ontario, he was booked on the show and uh, there was the only black guy booked on the show. And he asked, he asked about it. And he's like, and the produ- uh, the producer said, oh, if we have another black guy, it's going to be too ghetto, too ethnic. I'm like, whoa, I know. So he, he got really sour from a uh, um, uh, Ontario producers, because that is what they believe. Like we either are are the token or not Mm. at all. And, um, and with women as well, there's, uh, there's another comedy club here that has a hard time booking women. And, uh, I'm trying to get my foot in the door because I'm a, uh, I'm a man's woman, I guess. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to, uh, kind of like dismantle that and also want to see why, why do women not want to work with this person why do they not want to mm-hmm. and is it something that we can change because i'm all about legacies if we can make your legacy a lot better like with the uh, don burnstick if we can help your legacy because he was not featured in that book that he read really well <laughs> mm. um if i can help your legacy then we can inspire the young ones to know that you can change and that you don't have to be set in your ways because again with the camaraderie it's uh there's no room for growth if you're always trying to get at someone or, you know, put them down and mm-hmm. with uh, being all of us are narcissists, it's, it's kind of hard to like think outside of your own head or your own box or think of someone else. But that yeah. little guy, um, I think uh, uh, Monique in the States had the best quote. She's like when she was fighting for uh, her Netflix special, how they lowballed her, she said mm-hmm. to the camera, I'm fighting for the little girl who isn't here yet. And I heard Mm -hmm. that and I went, bing, that's me. I'm that Mm -hmm. little girl who isn't here yet. So I felt, I felt that. And then it also strives me to be uh, an unstoppable force because I have, I have goals and I have missions and I manifest my own destiny, pardon the pun. (laughs) And and if uh, we can emulate that camaraderie that Joe Rogan's crew and them guys have, then Canadian comedians, like even with CanCom or the, uh, yeah, all those Mm -hmm. organizations, associations, we can become uh, bigger and self-sufficient because we don't just need the clubs. We need to be able to 
uh, hold our own because that's what the big comics do down south. They book their own theaters uh, by themselves and their team, not from a company, not from CBC, you know, not from Just for Laughs. They book their own theaters. And that's where we want to be at one point. But in Canadian, it's really hard <laughs> to have the credibility to do that, to tell that venue, hey, I can fill 2,000 seats. They're like, who are you? So mm-hmm. it's it's one of those. Yeah, like just building it. It sounds like, you, you know, like you've got this hustle, but you're like hustling up this hill. Um, mm-hmm. And the hill is, you know, there's like this now maybe more, uh, like a greater inclination toward even like equity, diversity, and inclusion within like comedy. Um, but there's still this like overarching system that says like you are fighting over scarce resources Mm -hmm. and that that model like so works against solidarity that notion of like scarcity Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it's i love that you're like thinking about the future and what's what's yet to come as a means of just kind of like it sounds like uh, alleviating some of the pressure of narcissism like it's it's a heavy weight having a big head you know what i mean like (laughs) um and so this like cult of sort of originality uh novelty it's 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 tricky, right? It produces a lot of pressure, uh, pressure on your particular persona, and and not enough room to kind of breathe. Um, you you talk about like actually like doing breathing exercises before shows, mm-hmm. and and you know I have to think that performing during lockdown online was a mixed bag. Like oh, you didn't yeah. have you didn't have the nerves of like stepping out in front of a crowd, um, and you were like you were obviously obviously still like working those muscles of just like being funny and trying to get a crowd to laugh, but there isn't the same level of like feedback at all. So, you know, in terms of coping through lockdown and the pandemic, which we're not even fully out of, but we're sort of pretending that we are, um, you know, what is it about like the public nature in particular of comedic performance that you find really valuable, motivating? How is COVID altered the comedy landscape both in terms of like making people build more of an online following maybe you know like doing that more independent work of just like you know playing with social media and what it can do um and 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 do you see yeah do you see that model of like zoom performances persisting after the pandemic or is it just not where comedy lives so comedy evolves Mm -hmm. it has it has to evolve Due to the, I made a joke about how if the world ended and the apocalypse happened, there is going to be some guy who's going to line up some logs, put a stone and stand in front of it and try to do his act to a bunch mm-hmm. of people in disarray and the downtrodden hiding in the woods. Because And then mm-hmm. it will evolve into a night where everybody comes together and just takes the piss about their situation because that's what comedy is. Because mm-hmm. we need to alleviate from the trauma and that's what we did with the pandemic on Zoom. We have relieved, alleviated the trauma of we're all stuck inside. Well, let's let's see our faces and try to make them laugh. And uh, I worked at a COVID center when I was uh, at the pandemic, so I had some material on that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of made fun of how people got the uh, the swabs stuck up their nose and what they would do because I saw so many of them, hundreds to thousands of them. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let's like like make a joke about this, but. It is very cringy to do Zoom comedy. I have to tell you that. It's very cringy. You don't get the laughs. So mm-hmm. how I tell people who wanted to do Zoom comedy, it's a monologue. It's right. a monologue. Just if, if a 
influencer can do it on YouTube for 18 minutes, you can do it on Zoom for six. It's going to mm-hmm. be fine. And as long as you do it for money, because oh my God, to do it for free. Because <laughs> yeah. you're holding, it's not, I, I don't like to say to like in the negative sense, it's like holding the audience hostage in a way. Like mm. they're listening, but are they really? And it's, uh, it's uh, Bo Burnham mentioned it. It's like when you're watching a comedy at home, you're not laughing out loud. You're kind of maybe right. like blow to your nose a little bit. So with Zoom comedy, we have to encourage people, turn on your microphones, allow yourself to laugh, you know, just like, and and because we didn't get that feedback, we have to plow through. And because I continued to do comedy over Zoom, it made me a stronger comedian because I didn't give up on the fact that we have something to say and we're here to make you laugh. And it it is what it is. And uh, some people say, oh, I don't count the pandemic years. I'm like, well, I do because I was still hustling. I was still working. Mm-hmm. You got stronger, it sounds like, you know, just from having to yeah go that uphill climb. And also, I mean, like you you talk in there's a, a kind of um, CBC article that talks about, you know, like humor as best medicine and, and compiles a bunch of different voices from especially like indigenous comedians. And you you talked in that article about like taking the initiative to work as a security guard in a hospital. But you also say like, is as much material as you would have gotten out of it, that it took a toll. Um, you know, did that sort of radicalize you on some level? I mean, because it is the case that COVID hit uh, uh, communities of color like way harder. Do you see room for like ranting about that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, obviously it's not, there's nothing funny about it. Oh, but... uh, uh, there's, there's something funny about everything, honey. It's just like, if you speak to the audacity <laughs> of it, that's where I come from. Yeah, right. you can speak to the audacity. My thing was being uh, the front line, uh, watching how COVID uh, unfold in the hospitals and the treatment centers. I noticed it's uh, with our people, we are very scarce of uh, new medicines and uh, new vaccines Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, even COVID in general, because uh, with H1N1, it hit our nations really hard. And they, uh, we were the last to get the vaccine. And then this time around, we were the Mm -hmm. first. So there was some improvement there, but they, they, Mm -hmm. uh, they turned it on the back saying, Oh, we're the first because we're their Guinea pigs. I'm like, no, this is Canada basically apologizing for coming to us last during H1N1 in my head. So it radicalized Mm -hmm. me in that sense. And uh, what I did was I was one of the first 80,000 to get vaccinated in Ontario. And um, Mm -hmm. I made sure to let people know how I was feeling, how it was working, and uh, making sure that uh, everyone was hydrated. And I noticed if you weren't hydrated and you got the shot, your arm would like swell right up. And because hmm. you're, you have lymph nodes, right? And you're, if your lymph nodes, are, if you're not hydrated, your lymph nodes are just pumping just thick fluid through your body and it's not going to go anywhere. So you need to be hydrated. So out of this whole mess, mm-hmm. I just make sure that my people, because they are very dehydrated, drink more water and no uh, fault of their own because uh, water scarcity is uh, uh, first and foremost on our, uh, on our reserves and a lot of lead in those pipes, a lot of iron, but holy, not a lot of fresh water. So it's. Yeah. You make jokes about that as well. Yeah. Like the, at the beginning of the Got Land show, like saying that your, your uncle brought you a glass of fresh water and it's just like clearly like iced, iced tea <laughs> yeah. or something that you've got. Like mining those things, those difficult subjects for comedy, it's got to be disarming for audiences. And sometimes completely just like, 
uh, mind numbing for some audiences that aren't necessarily that don't that, as you say, took a module and how not to laugh at things that are like edgy subjects or, or difficult subjects. Um, but you don't hold back like, um, you know, in, in interviews, you've talked about how, you know, you sort of, you know, to some extent struggle within your own family with like your mom saying that on some level you've like appropriated your native native mm-hmm. culture uh, because they didn't raise you, you say, to be indigenous. They raised you black. to be black. And 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 you say like in I forget which interview, like, look at me. You know, I looked at <laughs> I, I looked in the mirror, you say, and I only saw Pocahontas. Yeah. And then you make this joke that you say is like a sort of like um not just any joke for you. You make this joke, steal my land and, and call, call me, me Rebecca. Rebecca. That's oh my, my god joke, my uh, Motua, uh joke because uh she was our first stolen sister and i'm like how can i say this on stage mm-hmm. and uh it was one of those like i think uh what's his name um he has the drink on stage uh ron white he has like mm-hmm. a little line and i heard that line and i was like oh i can have a line similarly where it's all like he was like dun 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 and i was like okay steal my land call me Rebecca and it came out the same way and I'm like because you stole me from my land and then you named her Rebecca and it's like um I actually have a, I'm doing a <laughs> I'm doing a, a show um a, a rose show and it's uh, I'm going to be dressing up like a Victorian secret <laughs> the secret is they stole my land but <laughs> it's like it's a, it's one of those things like I'm going to say that on stage like steal my land and call me Rebecca because uh, we can't let people forget that because a lot of girls, like they watch Pocahontas and they identify with Pocahontas. And uh, even though the the real story is so bad, it's horrible. It's just, but we can't forget where these actual stories come from. And I, I don't want that to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, you call that joke like a placeholder to see mm-hmm. if you kind of have the audience. Yeah, see if they're on board. It's such a like an interesting tool in a way, right? Like that 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 technique of like making a joke that you know has a rhythm, like a familiar rhythm that sounds mm-hmm. like comedy, but then like when it dawns on the audience what you're talking about, there's all this stuff happening in their head and like you can kind of sense them processing it and then like in real time if they laugh then you know you have them, but if they don't, then you know you have to adjust. Yes. Um that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a tester. That's what they call it in the comedy. It's our uh, mm. audience tester to see where they're at. And uh, everyone has a different tester. Um, Anthony Jeselnik, he'll say that right on stage. Well, that was a test, you know, <laughs> just to see where right. you are. Uh, good hosts will always have testers, too, to see where they're at. And hopefully the comedians are also watching the host because comedians need to watch the host because they need to watch the audience. They need to know mm. if they have to, what they can and cannot say, what the audience is letting them know. And the host, if they're a good host, is also uh, testing the waters as well. And with the steal my land and call me Rebecca, I found the one I can say. And and no native man is going to take it from me. <laughs> That's one <laughs> thing, too, because like there's lots of joke thieves in the indigenous community because they're like, oh, there's only so much you can say. And I'm like, well, I'm going like, to I nobody would ever take my jokes because they would never get as political or as dark or edgy as I would. But I mm-hmm. do understand that um, there that that is still there. There's lots of. Um, uh, there's animosity within the indigenous comedy community due to joke fest. And uh, I, I go up there and they're like, oh yeah, that's no one's joke. So that just came out of her. <laughs> that just came out of her. That's it's super interesting to me. Like that's something I've actually 
read, there's an academic article that talks about like how distinct kind of copyright is as a thing within comedy where like there have been sort of like cultures that have grown around comedy where for the most part, comedians are like policing themselves on the basis of just like a kind of code Mm -hmm. of just it being inherently wrong to steal another person's jokes. And, and I think like there's a way in which like there's a, I think a whole history of audiences getting that, like spontaneously understanding that joke theft is bad form. And kind of on that point, like to bring it back to this, this book by Cliff Nestroff, which is like, you know, it's kind of a weird book. It's like this big, you know, palimpsest of a bunch of different sort of like examples of indigenous comedy written by a white guy, you know? Uh, But like one moment in that book really, like I saw sort of like, um, not to like throw shade at Cliff Nesteroff, but like <laughs> he's a perfectly fine writer, but like there's a conflict between how he understands the central place of powwows mm-hmm. in the kind of like gestation of indigenous stand-up comedy and the way that you and um, Jen Hayward understand it. Like he says that, um, you know, powwows are these crucial spaces where, you know, MCs have a certain kind of role in testing the waters and bringing, you know, creating a sense of community uh, and that they kind of like become in some ways uh, the model for stand-up comedy. It becomes this like, you know, platform. But you've talked about how powwows are actually notoriously not a good place for comedy, which mm-hmm. kind of goes against Nestorov's claim that they're almost an incubator. Um, so what's he missing about it? He's missing that powwows are a sacred space. It's like going into right. church and doing comedy, though. So, right. If I had to uh, relay it to like Christianity. So going in a, and doing edgy, dark material in a church, like, ho, 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 you know, it's all like sprinkling holy happen. water on us. So mm-hmm. when uh, hosts and MCs at Powell's are doing comedy, they're, uh, they're, they're not towing the line. They know where the line is and they're not going anywhere mm-hmm. near it. Because mm-hmm. they need to be respectful for the elders and the traditional pe- the dancers, the just uh, being uh, cognizant of the sacred medicines. And with comedy, alcohol's uh, right, right, right with comedy. That's why a lot of comedians are sponsored by um, uh, uh, brands, alcoholic brands. Uh, not us, because that would be uh, detrimental to our brand and our cause. But mm-hmm. uh, with comedy, it should be. Uh, like a dark room, people are drinking, people are laughing, people are loose, and anything goes. At a powwow, that's kind of not how that goes. Like there will be jokes, but they're they're more on the side of like clean, funny, maybe a little sexual, but not too much. It's just making sure that uh, the people there, our elders, our chiefs, uh, our dancers, our women, everybody is respected. And it's hard to be respectful with comedy when we're towing the line. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, I appreciate that perspective and all the stuff that you're sharing. Like, I don't want to take too much more of your time, mm-hmm. um, but I did want to ask and, and sort of give you an opportunity to, um, you know, to sell and celebrate and pitch like what Got Land is all about. You've kind of spoken to it a little bit, but, you know, this is a show that it sounds like you've you've developed just by, you know, hustling and bringing people together and creating solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, you know, so it's like it's the show that is about bringing joy, but also providing like this space of empowerment and healing and all these great things. Um, and and so it's like it, it's such an interesting and evolving like space for that that sort of like innovation almost in comedy. And, and you talk about how like you are 
specifically trying to oppose that logic of like only giving time to comics that have a name already mm -hmm. that like you're just like radically open to folks that are you know that you think are funny or that that want to try and be funnier um and i guess like you know because you've talked about how gotland is about you know uh validating struggles it's about laughing at yourselves bringing up topics the canadians have a hard time talking about mm -hmm. um and the goal is nothing less than to change the world um do you you know what you've talked about your five-year plan your 20-year plan what is the kind of like immediate horizon right now for gotland and why should people why should people check it out so with Gotland, we're expressing solidarity through humor. That's always first and foremost, that is our mandate. And uh, our next step is to get to New York. And we want mm. to be on SNL. We want to yes. bring indigenous comedy to SNL. And we'll be the first indigenous people up there and all we have to do is five minutes, that's it. <laughs> and sure. uh, hopefully we'll, be, uh, we'll go down there. But uh, uh, when we help amateur comedians, uh, I always think to the fact that if Eddie Murphy was told that he has to have eight years under his belt before he could do a special, we wouldn't have got delirious when he was 21. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when people and elitists tell you no uh, at the beginning of your career and uh, somebody has talent, someone has promise, somebody has a spark, you're supposed to nurture that as any like parent which should nurture their kid's gift we should nurture our fellow comrades' gifts. These are our peers and we should treat them as such. So we've got land indigenous comedy. If anybody ever wanted to do comedy and they're indigenous or even BIPOC, we will uh, accept them and we will show them the tools that they need on social media and even to even start their own show just to get uh, their foot in the door because I know how hard it is to get stage time and we are also knowledgeable in the open mic scene of Turtle Island. So we know how to do it and we're willing to share the knowledge. Mm -hmm. um amazing and like such a like i say like it kind of like revolutionizes things a little bit like it it shows what can happen through solidarity um and through kind of like collective care in a way yes. um rather than competition and so it's like i just think it's brilliant um but anyway sorry uh i won't take any more of your time it's been really great talking to you and I can't wait to see you in July here in Halifax. Yes, I'm so excited. And also like I'm gonna come and bring the thunder. So <laughs> I yes. can't wait. So thank you so much. And a fellow Scotianer, uh, blue nose. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. I, I grew up with all that. I grew up uh, like as, sure. uh, we grew up in the little town of Truro right beside it. So uh, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna try to bring that back. Uh, growing up inside a little small white town and <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll bring the thunder and I'm so excited. So thank you so much, uh, Scott, for having me. Great talking to you.